1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDIC. I can rattle off a list of drugs now that lower ApoB and have failed cardiovascular outcome trials, niacin, the most famous. So you just can't call me up and say, but my favorite supplement lowers ApoB. Great. But show me an outcome trial, not your two patients you've given it to, or 50 patients, and you're anecdotally. That's why none of those drugs are encouraged by guidelines.
0: Welcome to Wellness, Fact versus Fiction, I'm Dr. Danielle Bellardo, and I'm a cardiologist who loves evidence-based medicine and nutrition science. But as a millennial, I've watched endless wellness fads take over social media. It's my mission to get to the bottom of things by bringing on the top expert physicians and scientists to help us determine what is fact versus fiction when it comes to your health. It's time to leave the pseudoscience behind and become empowered when it comes to our wellness. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Wellness Fact Versus Fiction, and I'm incredibly excited today to share with you one of my favorite, the best lipid expert on earth. If you follow me on social media, our guest today is someone you are very familiar with. I am constantly retweeting is highly educational material. I'm constantly sharing all of his amazing material on social media, whether it's Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. And today we have the one and only Dr. Thomas Dayspring. So Dr. Dayspring is a fellow of both the American College of Physicians and the National Lipid Association. He's certified in internal medicine and clinical lipidology. After practicing in New Jersey for 37 years in 2012, he moved to Virginia and served as an educational director for Nonprofit cardiovascular foundation and later as the chief academic advisor for two major cardiovascular laboratories until mid-2019. Currently, he is a virtual cardiovascular educational research assistant and clinical lipidologist at a prestigious national practice. Career-wise, he has given over 4,000 domestic in all 50 states and international lectures, including over 600 CME programs on atherothrombosis, lipids, lipoproteins, and their treatment, vascular biology, biomarker testing, women's cardiovascular issues. He's authored several manuscripts and lipid textbook chapters and has performed on several podcasts. Until 2019, he was an associate editor of the Journal of Clinical Lipidology. He was the recipient of the 2011 National Lipid Association's President's Award for Services to Clinical Lipidology. He has over 18,000 followers on his Twitter feed at Dr. Lipid, and I cannot endorse following uh, Dr. Lipid on Twitter enough. Dr. Dayspring is literally the most educational lipidologist that exists, and I know I'm going to embarrass him by telling him this, but he already knows that I'm a huge fan of his work, and I personally, my education throughout cardiology fellowship after cardiology training has been improved through your work. So, Tom, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Well, thanks for having me, and what an introduction. How can I possibly live up to all of that? I'll
0: try. You you absolutely do. I mean, you are, I know from the cardiovascular disease community, from the cardiology community, the lipidology community, you're so, you're world-renowned, you're so respected. So it's such an honor for me today to get to talk to you about lipids, which is my favorite topic as well. So I'm so excited. And I constantly attribute, you know, so much of what I know about ApoB lipoprotein, so much of what I know about atherogenic cardiovascular disease and atherogenesis in general and lipids is from you. So literally you've been a huge, huge educational component of everyone's education. And I thank you. So today we are going to talk about my favorite topic again. So the first three podcast episodes we did were solo. And so everyone was probably really sick of hearing me talk about lipids on my own. But today we brought in Dr. Dayspring, the big guns to talk about what everyone's been asking me, which is how do we medically manage lipids and what are the medications we use for lowering cholesterol and ApoB and you know, what do we do and what are the different kinds of medications, side effects, et cetera. So starting off with, if you're listening now and you haven't listened to my previous three episodes on cholesterol, the previous cholesterol series episodes, go take a listen to those first. We cover all of the basics, the different terminology, super important foundation for today's episode. But if you're already caught up then get, we'll get into it and you're going to really enjoy this episode. Okay, so although we covered on my previous podcast episode about different levels of LDL cholesterol and ApoB and what we consider to be more ideal and what we consider to be less ideal, I was hoping, Dr. Dayspring, you could just start out with a general uh, discussion of lip- lipoproteins and are different levels of what we consider ideal versus abnormal, and the difference between primary and secondary prevention.
1: Sure. And of course, we're very interested in lipoproteins because they are our body's mechanism of trafficking lipids, especially co- well, cholesterol and triglycerides are the two main lipids that most people are familiar with. And the last place we want cholesterol entering or accumulating is our artery wall, because then they're going to need a cardiologist like you. I would rather try and put you out of business. Ah, (laughs) Me too. (laughs) By preventing that trafficking of cholesterol into the artery wall. So how does cholesterol get there? It's obviously a passenger inside a lipoprotein capable of crashing the artery wall. And I'm sure you've discussed that previously. Those are the ApoB containing lipoproteins. Lucky for us, there is one ApoB peptide per lipoprotein that can crash your artery wall. So if we measure ApoB, we're counting them. There's a lot of factors involved with them crashing the artery wall, but the primary factor is particle number, particle concentration. So ApoB provides us that. For most of the world who's probably not measuring ApoB, they use lipid concentration surrogates of ApoB, which are LDL cholesterol, the cholesterol in our LDL particles the predominant ApoB particle, and non-HDL cholesterol, which is really the cholesterol in all of the ApoB particles, VLDLs and LDLs. So whatever your metric you're looking at of those three, as they go above a certain threshold, that person is at risk for atherosclerosis. We now, it took us a long time to appreciate this, but that takes a lot of time. So it's really the ApoB concentration over time that we wind up ultimately with atherosclerosis. And that's why it's starting to be important, even in children, to understand where they stand in a lipid world. Because if they're going up, you start treating once they cross a certain threshold or other risk factors. Tell us, boy, this is a person you better worry about. So therefore, after multiple clinical trials, and I like to joke, I should be the guy to talk about this. Because when I started in private practice in 75, There was zero clinical trials looking at this, zero uh, at least trial-proven therapeutics that we could use. The only metric we were measuring back then was total cholesterol. Then a few years later, Rita developed a calculation for LDL cholesterol, and we at least had a couple tools to figure out who might be at risk. Although the numbers back in those days were Today, we'd consider them horrific <laughs> as to, hey, you better worry. So, But it's these ApoB particles. We have come to realize through God knows how many trials of all types, epidemiologic, clinical, genetic trials, that you have too many of those ApoB particles, you're at risk. Therefore, it makes great sense to get rid of those ApoB particles using lifestyle. If it works, great. Whatever the lifestyle, that's appropriate to every individual. Danielle is an expert on nutrition itself, and she's elaborated on this many times. But sooner or later, in many people, we're going to have to use pharmacologic agents to achieve what we now recognize are the levels of LDL cholesterol, non-HL cholesterol, or APOB. If we're going to either prevent atherosclerosis, that's primary prevention, or if we happen to get a new patient who's already got atherosclerosis, We're probably going to be a little more aggressive with them. That's called secondary prevention. Don't let them have another cardiovascular event, for goodness sakes, because if they survive the first one, probably not going to be so lucky with the second one. A little later, we're just going to introduce but it got introduced almost last First time I saw it, I think it was Aaron Nikos who wrote about this, was primordial prevention. It was finally recognized that once APOB or its surrogate metric starts going up, no matter what the age, we better start doing something about it in early life. That's more likely going to be lifestyle, unless it's a total inherited nightmare of the lipid. So that's called primary, primordial prevention. That's like before primary prevention. Yeah, recognize it early, early in the game. I always joke my dad was a fireman. He always taught me, Tom, if you see a little fire, stamp it out. Don't wait till it becomes a big fire. So it's been my mantra. So those are those prevention. Methodologies and how we sort of classify people. Current guidelines basically tell us to do what's called a cardiovascular risk evaluation. And they have algorithms and tools how to do that. But the problem with those algorithms is they're predicting are you going to have a heart attack or a stroke in the next five or 10 years? And that's good because we we certainly don't want anybody to have them. But we're now recognizing one of the weaknesses of that approach is. We're starting to treat people when they're 50 and 60 years old, when they're full of atherosclerosis. So we have to move towards more aggressive diagnostic primary prevention or even this primordial prevention, if we ever are going to be so bold in that. So and depending on your degree of risk, current guidelines say, all right, if you're very high risk, and they pretty much define that as somebody who's had one or two events Bypass, heart attack, heart failure, stroke, you name it, then the ApoB and the LDLC goals are the strictest of all using the current guidelines. If you're a high risk person, that means you have a multitude of risk factors or a super extreme ApoB or LDL cholesterol level. They obviously want you to attack that one, but the goals are a tiny bit less depending which guideline you're reading. In that primary prevention setting, again, want you once the Apo B or its lipid surrogate is above a certain level, do what you have to do to get that to a certain level. But the goals they put in that are a little less stringent than they would if you are in the higher, very high risk category. And they all of the guidelines have their own. Here's your target of the those metrics. They especially zero in on non-HDL cholesterol if. You have a triglyceride issue because they want you to not only lower LDL cholesterol, but use the better lipid surrogate of ApoB, non HDL cholesterol. So, there are actually two goals of therapy if you're doing a lipid profile LDLC and non HDLC. Guys like me who just extol ApoB, if I'm measuring that, I mean, I always look at LDLC and non HDLC, but I could make the case in all but the most unusual cases, I don't really need that. So there are going to be specific goals. Here's the goal I use, because growing up, I went through all these trials as they were developing. And once ATP, uh, NCEP ATP3 was sort of the first national lipid guideline that came out, and they recognized this primary and secondary prevention, they sort of gave us an algorithm that, hey, we would... You name your favorite lipid concentration, and we've measured enough people that we know what the normal distribution is. And they broke it into tertiles, quartiles, deciles. So if you're at the 50th percent concentration of ApoB, LDLC, non hdlc that means 50% of people are better than you, 50% of people are worse. They know, oh boy, if you get a, you know, it was debatable, 60, 70, 80th percentile, you're worse than 80% of the people, you're high risk. So clearly you need an expert to guide your therapy. But they also noted that if your metric is below the 20th percentile of the population, you're probably at a low risk unless you've already had a heart attack or bypass or something like that. So here's what here's the Dayspring Guidelines. Looking at APOB, the uh, uh, 20th percentile is about 80 milligrams per deciliter. Uh, the uh, fifth percentile, which is... Really, some people would say, boy, that's extreme, but they would apply that to the very high risk people. That's about 60 milligrams per deciliter. With LDLC, the 20th percentile is about 90 milligrams per deciliter. If you get it below 70, you're in the uh, 50 or the 5th percentile. And for the longest or the last several years, seven, or at least when the AHA guidelines ca- came out, I believe 2019. They were shooting for seventy in the high risk yeah. people and everything, so very interesting. This year, the European Atherosclerosis Society came out and said, "No, LDLc below fifty five in of the really very high risk people, and the ApoB if you're doing that. Really, it's fifty or below in that type of person." So, and you can see because they're in the lowest population percentiles. So, if you come to me, even if you're a young stud or a beautiful young woman and you look great. But if your APL-B, LDL-C non-HEL starts to go much above that 20th percentile, I am thinking primordial prevention. And I, I would at least discuss options with you. If you can take care of yourself with better lifestyle and get it down, fantastic. But if not, and there's a lot of reasons why even some people who follow the best nutritional practices, world-class athletes wind up in the CCU sometime yes. because they need pharmacologic management to achieve the goals we're talking about. The last thing I'll say with that little introduction is, you know, the currently FDA-approved drugs, because that's what we're talking about today, all basically act by the same mechanism. They're good at inducing the liver to upregulate a surface receptor that interfaces with the plasma, hepatocyte plasma, and they touch. There's something called an LDL receptor. If the liver produces that, and it produces a lot of them, they stick into plasma. And guess what that receptor, what the ligand is? Look at what is it trying to attach to? The ApoB peptide that is on these particles carrying cholesterol. So if you have properly functioning LDL receptors, along comes an ApoB particle, the vast majority of which are LDLs. The receptor grabs them. And here's what happens. The receptor, now it's got the particle in its grasp. It internalizes into the liver, into something called a lysosome. It's a little intracellular particle. And it gets catabolized. But here's, I mean, Mother nature's an amazing thing. That endosome can sometimes say, LDL receptor, you get out of here. I'm not going to destroy you. And then that LDL receptor can recycle right back to the surface of the liver again. And grab another ApoB particle and bring it in. And if everything is going well and that endosome cooperates, the LDL receptors get to recycle many times over a day or two. Of course, you can imagine a bad scenario with what if that endosome destroyed the LDL receptor? Uh Uh-oh, it can't recycle. You will have less ability to remove those ApoB particles. The medical term for inducing your liver to grab ApoB particles and pull them in because if you pull them out of plasma, they sure can't crash your artery wall, it's called clearance. So any of the drugs we're going to talk about all have, all but one, all but two, and we'll mention who they are, trials are in progress. All the others we mentioned have published multiple clinical, empowered, randomized trials showing these drugs work through the LDL receptor to improve clearance, and they do it safely. Because if they didn't do it safely, they wouldn't be approved by the FDA. So this is the key. You're going to learn about how the various drug classes we talk about today somehow modulate what we call LDL receptor expression. Your liver makes it and sticks it on the surface. Or we have a newer class of drugs that actually lets that LDL receptor not get destroyed so readily so it can recycle a lot more times than it does. End of the day, lower ApoB through an LDL receptor. So all of the drugs we're going to talk about today uh, that at least have outcome data, there are some drugs we're going to talk about that have failed to produce outcome data, although they're still on the market, and perhaps all but one still have nuanced uses. They're not really acting through that LDL receptor, which is probably why they have failed in their clinical outcome trials, in my mind. So that's the little ApoB story. That's the LDL receptor story. and. I guess we can. Oh, one last thing. So, uh, because I did mention we have to trick the liver into expressing LDL receptors. So, what determines whether the liver is going to make LDL receptors, meaning your protein making apparatus is going to synthesize, because the genes are telling it, make an LDL receptor. It breaks three and then cycles to the surface of the liver. So, what tells the liver, make LDL receptors or stop making LDL receptors? It really is very simple. It comes down to the lipid pool in your liver. And the primary lipid we're talking about is cholesterol. So cholesterol is great. The liver does a lot of things with it. It puts it in lipoprotein, ships it out to other cells, or the liver converts cholesterol to a bile acid and puts it in our gut. We need bile acids to digest foods. So, And the liver, of course, puts cholesterol in its own cell membranes. The liver is the primary organ filling your HDL particles that pretty much traffic cholesterol to our gonads and adrenal cortical tissue to produce those type of hormones. So the here's the bad news about cholesterol. Every cell in our body needs it to a certain amount. The liver needs it a little bit more. But once cholesterol accumulates above that physiologic amount, it's a pretty toxic molecule that crystallizes, causes apoptosis. That means cell death. And that cell will die. So all cells, and especially the liver, has ways to say, oh, I've got too much cholesterol. It actually is a contributor to fatty liver disease. Everybody thinks it's fatty acids and triglycerides, but sterols are right in there too. The liver has great ways to get rid of cholesterol to prevent against that. So let's look at a liver that is all of a sudden doesn't have enough cholesterol. Oh my God, how am I going to make bile salts today? How am I going to fill the HDL particles today? So the liver says, that's easy. We'll manufacture more LDL receptors. They'll go up to the plasma, grab all those LDL particles carrying cholesterol and pull them into the liver. Bingo, the liver has just replenished its supply of cholesterol. So one trick way of inducing more LDL receptors is going to be to deplete the hepatic, the liver pool of cholesterol. And we primarily do that by inhibiting its synthesis or prohibiting its absorption from the gastrointestinal tract. All right, but what happens if there is too much cholesterol in the liver? And there's many ways that could be. Then the liver says, oh my God, I sure as heck don't want any more cholesterol. So the liver doesn't produce so many LDL receptors. We call that down regulation. All of a sudden there's no more LDL receptors. Guess what's not being cleared from your plasma? Those ApoB dump trucks, those people have high LDL cholesterol, non HL cholesterol, ApoB. So you can see we're going to trick the liver by putzing with that cholesterol pool in the liver. And our last, probably the drug that we're going to get into, and it's a great one. And uh, those of us who really care for severe lipid disorders, a cardiologist like Danielle, uses a class of drug that does nothing to cholesterol synthesis, does nothing to cholesterol absorption but it inhibits the enzyme that directs the LDL receptor toward catabolism. So that promotes LDL receptor. We call it extension. So if I can make your LDL receptors live longer, they're going to go to the surface, and I'm going to really lower those ApoB particles out of your plasma. So with that little physiology and pathophysiology in mind, I guess we'll proceed into the drug list then, yeah,
0: Tom, this is a phenomenal, literally everyone listening. This is, we're just so, for, we're all so fortunate right now because this is a truly a masterclass in lipid physiology and these medications from you, who is such a brilliant expert. I can't thank you enough. That was such a great, succinct roundup of the physiology and super helpful for anyone listening that needed that brief overview. And thank you so much. And one thing that was really interesting that you mentioned is, you know, it's fascinating to hear that, you know, you've been through kind of, you know, the entire progression of the, the change of what we know about lipids, what we know about atherogenic lipoproteins, and what we even viewed historically as what was high risk, lower risk. And, and as you mentioned, that even for the ESC guidelines, European Society of Cardiology, now we're recommending in, you know, in secondary prevention, high risk, we're recommending an LDL. LDL goal less than fifty five, and I think that most American cardiologists are following the ESC guidelines now and following suit with you know the lower APOB, the better. And I think that in general, um, there's a lot of you know not to not to totally detract from where we're going to talk about all of the supplements and um, we're going to talk about the different medications and options. But I do want to say that there is so much you know confusion and misinformation. I know you see it on Twitter too about APOB, high APOB not being dangerous. And it's so interesting and strange to me in many ways, because from an academic and a scientific standpoint, it's well accepted that APOB and um, high LDLC, you know, is causative in atherosclerosis, you know, above a certain threshold. And it's very accepted that the lower is the better. And, you know, we're really finding that there is no floor to that in every conference that we have, you know, again and again. But what's interesting is there's this kind of growth of misinformation about uh, APOB not being causative in atherosclerosis. And I do appreciate that you on social media take the time to educate people to say you cannot have atherosclerosis without atherogenic lipoproteins. And it's an important reminder.
1: Now, you, uh, I think I sent it out yesterday or so, and I got a nice like from you that there is no atherosclerosis unless cholesterol is in your artery wall, Period. Nothing else is required for atherosclerosis. You don't have to be fat. You don't have to have hypertension. You don't have to have diabetes. You don't have to have the worst family history in the world. You don't even have to smoke. But if there's cholesterol in your artery wall, as per definition, you have atherosclerosis. And every trial that we've ever followed people with atherosclerosis, they have far worse, lower morbidity and mortality. So I don't know how anybody can argue about this. Even the genetic Mendelian evaluations yes. have declared ApoB to be causal of coronary heart disease. And it's primarily because ApoB is just the protein that's carrying the cholesterol into the artery wall. It's like the driver of the getaway car. It's not the ApoB per se that causes plaque, but he's delivering every time he comes in a uh, several thousand cholesterol molecules to your artery walls. So that's what, and the deniers, if you want to call me up and say, look, I've got on this diet, and most of the time we run into this nowadays, as you know, is the ketogenic diet, where because of their intake of saturated fat, doesn't happen to everybody, but to a lot of them, saturated fat actually makes the liver stop making more of those LDL receptors. So their ApoB goes through the roof. Now their triglycerides might look better. They may have lost some nice weight and they're feeling good. Looking good, looks are deceiving with coronary disease, as you know. But uh so they don't want to be told I gotta not raise APOB. It doesn't matter to me. Some of them do a coronary calcium inappropriately because they're young, or even if they're older, they don't see positive CAC. Great, that may buy you another five, 10 years, but uh every single trial of any nature, epidemiologic, th- clinical, therapeutic, Mendelian has shown beyond argument that high ApoB is associated with atheroscrotic. Now, are there exceptions to the rule? Of course. There are smokers who don't get lung cancer or emphysema. I don't know why. God bless them. Are there some people who seem to go through life with high ApoB and somehow don't pay an atheroscrotic price? Of course. But early in life, you want to bet which one you're in, the at risk or not. That's If you like playing Russian roulette, maybe that's okay to do. But I sure wouldn't. And until they can do a trial showing that, per se, the high saturated fat ketogenic diet blows ApoB to the roof. But here's a five, 10-year study where there's no heart disease. I'll believe it. Until then, I think you're taking great risk with such a terrible risk factor.
0: I couldn't agree more and I think that what's you know interesting that you point out too is that although, you know, for anyone listening whether you're a physician, healthcare provider or if you're not in medicine You know, Tom also briefly mentioned the, which I mentioned in previous podcasts as well, is that when we're looking at cardiovascular risk, you know, we do something called an ASCVD risk calculator, risk score using pooled cohort equations, and and although that some of the other comorbidities such as hypertension, diabetes, smoking, you know, kidney disease, there's various things that can increase your risk, but at the but the I think it's so important that you reiterated that those are not required for cardiovascular disease. And I think that people don't realize that. Some, sometimes someone could say, but, but I'm thin and my blood pressure is great and I'm not going to get atherosclerosis just because my lipids are high. And then we may even do uh, a calcium score on this individual and find that they do have plaque already. So I think it's really important that you did uh, reiterate that although risk factors can make your risk for cardiovascular disease higher, it is not required for atherosclerosis. It's just cholesterol that's required for atherosclerosis, and that you are not immune to getting cardiovascular disease or coronary heart disease just because you don't have the other risk factors. You only need the one. And I also think it's also important to point out, too, is that, you know, I see this so, I've been a cardiologist now for two years, and then before that, like three years of fellowship, three years of residency, four years of med school. And over the last you know twelve or so years, I've been in medicine, which is not as long as you by any means. But even over the last twelve years, I have seen a, although despite we've the fact that we've seen such an incredible advancement in some of the medications, the medical therapy, uh, phenomenal. We have so many options for patients in addition to lifestyle, you know, you still see patients that are younger and younger that develop, you know, cardiovascular disease. And the thing is, is that for anyone listening, you know, heart disease remains the number one cause of death for men and women. And you're about to learn from Dr. Dayspring all these phenomenal medical therapies that we've discussed in a podcast episode, all of the brilliant lifestyle changes you can do as well. So, you know, that's of course always important. ACC, AHA, class one recommendation, NLA, everyone recommends that. But we have so many phenomenal medical therapies for those who need it. They are amazing evidence-based medical therapies that we know the formula to prevent cardiovascular disease. So as a preventive cardiologist and, you know, sitting here with Tom, who's a phenomenal lipidologist, we know what to do to prevent cardiovascular disease. Of course, it's working on all those other risk factors. But additionally, we have amazing medical therapy for those who need it. And so I think it's so important to, you know, reiterate for young people who are listening, I don't think heart disease triggers as much of a concern or, you know, a warning because people, you know, when you're in your 20s, 30s, you think I'm immortal. But I've even seen I'm in my 30s and I've even seen younger and younger uh, individuals presenting with atherosclerosis. And knowing that we have a way to treat it and prevent it from even developing earlier, I think is just such a great point. And that we remind everyone that it is the number one cause of death for both men and women.
1: Yeah, and just to put a little bit of an exclamation point on that, obviously, I'm a doc who grew up in what I call the dark ages of <laughs> cardiovascular prevention. When they started to be good with diagnostics. They invented coronary angiography in the late 60s and 70s, and the CCU concept evolved. So we were started to do a little better with people. But with respect to that generation of physicians, you know what we were taught? Well, you're a man, Tom. You better worry about this. But don't ever worry about atherosclerosis in women because it's a non-entity. Wow. Even, even as a young intern and resident back then, I used to say, but there's three women in the CCU wow. right now. You know, but it just didn't dawn us. We kept getting the mantra. And now we know we're, uh, that women are really no different than men. In fact, they may be worse because they go through pregnancy, which yeah. has the potential to induce all sorts of cardiometabolic disarrangement that men never get because the men are not carrying those babies or four or five babies over the years that screws up their cardiometabolic system. So uh, please, whatever we talk about today with our lipid therapies, with the ApoB, it's every human out there. It's, and it's every ethnicity. Some are worse than the others. And we just have to zero in on the risk factors And never think. Oh, look at Danielle. She's a young woman. She couldn't pop. How do I know? I you know if I would take a little submarine and cruise her orders. Now, she's probably, I'm sure, has uh, looked at her risk factors carefully, but you can't look at somebody. No, you might look you at her and say, well, you're a little bit more overweight than her. I bet you're worse. You just put that out of your equation. Absolutely.
0: You, you never know. I, I see patients that are um, all the time who are super fit. They exercise. They do tons of things that are great for their lifestyle, but they still have elevated atherogenic lipoproteins, a high ApoB, high LDLC. And so it's, it's not just weight. It's not just diabetes and hypertension, those things. We worry about all those things as well. But it doesn't mean that just because you do not have those risk factors that you aren't going to have elevated cardiovascular risk. And so I'm so glad you reiterated that. one of the reasons why I love preventive cardiology so much, and I love being a cardiologist so much, is because I feel fortunate to have grown up in the era of amazing therapeutics. And I truly believe, and I know you're a believer of this too, we really do have this formula. You know, we're not God. We can't predict anything 100%. But we really do have a really robust formula with really safe and effective medications now to really help prevent cardiovascular disease in the vast majority of people. If we catch it early enough and get them on the right medications and the right therapy. So I'm excited to talk about some of those treatments with you, especially because you are just the most knowledgeable about this on the face of the planet.
1: <laughs> well, like I said, I'm like the Wright brothers. I was there at the beginning and I've now we're in the rocket age. So I've sort of evolved through that, through clinical trials and lipid therapeutics and stuff. And listen, the sad part is I'm a, I was a bizarre student back then. My senior year in med school, I think I was 71. It was all elective back then. You could go and do whatever you wanted. You know, your junior year, you had to go through every subdivision of medicine, OBGYN, PEDS, psycho. And then senior year, my entire senior year, I visited New Jersey hospitals, their cardiology departments, and I hung around. Probably because coronary angiography, look, oh, what a cool thing. And CCUs, that's where the action was. But I just developed a fascination for cardiology. Now, in my residency, by the second and third year, you have a ton of elective time. I virtually did it all in the cardiac cath lab or the CCU, hung with the cardiologist. Because one of the real reasons is that's what everybody was dying of back then. You were on call at night and you were covering the ER. You got three, four acute coronary syndromes per night in northern New Jersey. I was in a 750-bed hospital. It's a big hospital. So my God, that's where the action was. But, you know, it's kind of cool when you're a resident, you're staying up all night, you're trying to save people you're not. Once you go into private practice, all of a sudden you don't want to be up after midnight. But as an internist with a private practice now, here I am two or three in the morning back in the darn ER or CCU signing death certificates on people who shouldn't have death certificates signed, young men, young women, widows and children are left. It just hit me. God, Tom, you have to develop an expertise in atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Early on, it was, we at least could try and treat blood pressure. We have no lipid stuff. But when it came, I was there to jump right on it. And that's when I really started studying lipids. And that was sadly the 80s, mid 80s, when wow. the lipid drugs started to appear. Wow. But obviously, I and I think I did, I know, and it's anecdotal, but I know the number of ACSs and Uh, unstable coronary disease started to go less and less in my practice. Wow. Uh,
0: Well, you've been through this through the beginning. And so we're excited to hear your take on this. Well, one of the things I wanted to start on is that um, what's so interesting is that, as you know, Tom, and as everyone listening knows, I'm a huge fan of lifestyle change and diet change, of course, for cardiovascular disease prevention. But I am also an incredibly huge fan of guideline-directed medical therapy. I think our medical therapy we have for cardiovascular disease prevention is phenomenal. It's getting better and better. And so what's interesting is that sometimes, you know, I, I hit a wall on social media with the individuals that want to promote what they consider natural-only um, sort of remedies for, for cholesterol. And I'd love for you to touch on them. So one of the ones that uh, I'd love for you to touch on why we do not recommend routine use of the following supplements and why instead we recommend the FDA-approved medications that we're going to discuss. So the ones are sterols, stanols, niacin, red yeast, rice, and bergamot. So I was hoping you could just touch on why are these not first line? Why are we not recommending these? And why instead are we going to recommend the medications that we're going to talk about next?
1: It's very easy answer. Uh, and why does the FDA reckon, has recommended all the other drugs and never any of those? Because some of them are FDA-regulated. They're over-the-counter. Some are some food supplements. Uh, which even have less, but they don't have never done the randomized blind clinical trials that say, if you take supplement X, randomize a whole group of people with various risk factors to placebo or supplement X, five years later, are they having atherosclerotic events or not? There is zero data on that. So that means there's no what we call primary first level evidence that they work. Almost all of the drugs we're going to talk about later do have that evidence. And if they don't, they're very their trials are in progress. So the FDA let them sneak on saying, All right, at least you prove you're safe. We're going to use it, but get back to us real soon with the outcome data. And if you don't have it, goodbye to you. You're not going to stay on the market. So these supplements. And the sad thing is, is people email me, email you, but I took supplement X, Y, or Z, and my LDL-C or ApoB dropped X amount. It's working. I can rattle off a list of drugs now that lower ApoB and have failed cardiovascular outcome trials. Niacin, the most famous, fibrates lower ApoB. They haven't worked. Estrogen lowers ApoB. Nobody's prescribing estrogen to prevent coronary heart disease. Some of the serms like roloxifen lowers ApoB. But yet, it had a no outcome trial, the roof trial. So you just can't call me up and say, "But my favorite supplement lowers apoB. Great, but show me an outcome trial, not your two patients you've given it to, or fifty patients, and your anecdotally." That's why none of those drugs are encouraged by guidelines. Specifically, very quickly, stanols and sterols are actually advi- advised by And many current guidelines is hey, once you do what you're supposed to do, if you would like to get some further LDLC cholesterol, APOB lowering, prescribing a sterol or a stanol. People don't know it. A stanol is just not absorbable by the gastrointestinal. Sterols might get in, depending on how efficient your intestine is at absorbing. But to get in, they enter my cells, biliary my cells in the digestion tract, and they bump cholesterol out. So what happens is you absorb less cholesterol. You can't absorb an extra stanol, but you might absorb the phytosterols. Is that good or is it not good? The problem is, is there are no randomized blinded trials showing that sterols or stanols, uh, yes, they will. And we understand why they might lower LDL cholesterol. Not a lot, but a little bit. but how do we know that they work? And do we really know they're safe if they don't have these long outcome trials? As a guy who's written two like, 70-page chapters in modern lipid textbooks on understanding sterile and stanol absorption, there is actually a disease called phytosterolemia, where these people have marked absorption of phytosterols, and they get premature atherosclerosis. Now, they're rare. It's a genetic mishap that that happens. But there are people who, if we told go to a uh, supplement store and start taking a gram or two of phytosterols every day, you might lower your LDL cholesterol, but at least in some of them, you would be raising the LDL cytosterol and campesterol levels, which uh, to a guy like me who really understands this stuff at the highest possible level is you don't want to do that without safety trials and testing to the efficacy. So. You know, I don't see these ads in Virginia anymore. When I was in Jersey, it was every night they were blabbing commercials on TV that men had to take these supplemental cytosterol supplements because their prostate would shrink oh, and go what? away. Oh, now, no. listen, oh, first of all, if those men have normal intestines, cytosterol is not absorbable. So it's a sham to say sham. taking cytosterol. If it can't get in systemically, yeah. how the heck's it going to help the prostate? But if you were a hyperabsorber of sterols, that is a man whose sterol LDL cytosterol level might go through the roof. Is that good or is that bad? I wouldn't mess with it, but it just goes to show you the nonsense that is promulgated about these supplements and stuff. So to sterols and stanols, I know how to evaluate a person at baseline. Are they a hyperabsorber? Are they not? There are now genetic tests that identify uh, loss of function of the receptor or that pulls them in. So if we were doing genetic testing on everybody, we'd have a better handle on who to uh, advise. Maybe a phytosterol is okay with you. The last thing, because I know Danielle is certainly a vegan. And uh, if if I was taking a gram or two of a phytosterol supplement, I would be eating three times as many sterols as Danielle eats in her normal Totally vegetarian diet. Yep. So it's like a pharmacologic dose of sterols. It's not eating a vegan diet type of a right. number. So- there's just a lot more to this story than we know.
0: Absolutely. I'm, I'm so glad you clarified that because we, so in our latest American Society of Preventive Cardiology Clinical Practice Statement on Nutrition and Cardiovascular Disease, I was so fortunate to, um, I, I was the lead author, but I got to write it with Martha Gulati, Aaron Mikos, um, Roger Blumenthal, and uh, just tons of phenomenal Kevin Hall, tons of phenomenal dietitians and cardiologists and scientists. But we actually decided to leave sterols and stanols for a recommendation out. Um, and we just recommended dietary change, you know, Mediterranean, DASH, um, whatever sort of dietary pattern that's plant predominant, but left sterols and stanols out because when we had reviewed all the evidence, you know, we just didn't think that with regards to, like you mentioned, heart outcomes and things like that, it wasn't there. And so the 2019 ACC um, AHA guidelines also do not include them either. So. So I think the consensus agrees with you.
1: <laughs> yes. And, and it's funny that got they got put into the original NSEP ATP two and three guidelines by Scott Grundy was the lead author. Yes, now, I'm aware genius. I remember
0: those papers. Yeah. Nobody
1: I respect more than Scott, Brilliant. Over time. but the early part of Scott's career was studying sterols and stanols, And he was very hopeful back in the 70s and 80s that they would work. After they published that, I had one of the top experts, and I won't name the name, came up to me and said, Tom, I grabbed Scott and I told them not to put that in the guidelines without clinical trial evidence that they work and are safe. But I'm glad to see the more, the more modern guidelines are saying, wait a minute, we can't let them in because the data isn't there. You know, so that's the Starl Stanol story.
0: Thank you, and for niacin, I, niacin's a big one that everyone asks about, and I love how much you 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 give you just give it to everyone straight on Twitter about niacin. So please share for our listeners.
1: Yeah, and again, because I'm an old dinosaur, really, the first two lipid drugs that published randomized controlled outcome data was part of what they called the Coronary Drug Project back in the '70s, and they actually studied estrogen. They gave it to men on the belief that, hey, women don't get heart attacks. Men do. So let's turn men into women by giving them estrogen. Guess what? They had to stop that trial early from estrogen causing thrombosis in men at the doses they used, which was very high. They studied thyroid hormone on the belief that, boy, people with thyroid toxicosis have low LDL cholesterol levels. So, And we know the thyroid uh, hormone is very involved with Uh, lipid homeostasis for a lot of reasons. So they drowned men with high dose thyroid hormone and of course caused heart attacks. So that's another trial that ended early. But then along the next two drugs came. One was a fibrate called clofibrate. We called it S back then. That was like the first lipid drug I really learned about (laughs) back in the dark ages. But there was also niacin too. Randomized blinded outcome trials both niacin and clofibrate failed in their, to hit the primary endpoint. So that was the first strike against them. Then they all started doing post hoc analyses and, oh, this, well, it's good in this person, maybe not so good. You know, that type of stuff that people have eternally done with Clinical trials, ignore the primary endpoint, keep searching for an endpoint (laughs) that you can prove. Some secondary
0: surrogate,
1: partial, tertiary endpoint. (laughs) So, uh, cherry picking at its best, to say the least. So, niacin, like I said, there wasn't much else then. So, niacin got a long run. Now, finally, they started to do more serious trials with niacin uh, to. Reduce cardiovascular because they did some very small angiographic studies and the images started to look good if you took niacin, but there are you know 100 people here, 50 people there. You can't prove outcome reduction with. But, but all of a sudden, two more big uh, trials came down: AIM-HIGH and Heart Protection Study Thrive, where they were using uh, prescription strength niacin pretty much on the belief that raising HDL cholesterol was all you had to do, which niacin happens to do well. And both of those trials failed to not only not reduce any cardiovascular endpoint, we started to discover what we really knew but never talked about was, my God, this drug has a lot of toxicity here. Diabetes, atrial fibrillation, ulcers, platelet disorders, hematologic disorders, aside from the flushing and all that stuff. So nice. And finally, the guidelines came around, and said, look, sooner or later, you've got to start believing the evidence. And it's not in any current guideline. But on the world, you go to the Internet and people love nice. First of all, Multivitamins supply a daily uh, niacinry uh, amount. That's about 16 milligrams for a, a man or a woman. In these trials with niacin, we were using pharmacologic doses, several grams, several thousand milligrams of niacin. So you can't compare what some trivial, probably needed physiologic dose of niacin, which you can pretty much get by eating the right diet, uh, to compare it to, oh, I'm going to drown myself with mega doses of niacin. That's dumb, but people still do it. And so many people believe that, oh, well, I'm taking 200 milligrams. Well, that has no effect on lipids or (laughs) (laughs) lipoprotein. It's not the pharmacologic dose needed. So niacin is an interesting drug whose time was there, but the real type of testing, which guidelines and FDA started to realize were necessary. The last thing I'll say about niacin, it's been removed from all the guidelines. Uh, prescription-strength niacin, the extent it was removed from formulas in Europe, it's still available in this country, Is there's just no data supporting it. So, uh, And the toxicity is serious. You know another drug that causes acanthosis migracans, which is a dermatologic pathognomonic diagnosis of insulin resistance? That's common with niacin. So why would you ever want to take a drug unless it had phenomenal outcome data that was making you insulin resistant to a severe degree. Absolutely. So, look, they tried it, it didn't work, and it's time to stop using it and stop promulgating it. I know some people want to still use it because, hey, it lowers Lp little a enough. You know, there would be no data supporting that in the trials where they actually looked at it post hoc, lowering Lp little a. And now it lowers it a little bit, is probably not enough does not reverse events in people with lipoprotein. So it's not certainly the two most recent LP little A statements last two weeks in Europe. It was
0: amazing. The one the one that just came out the European one and it was
1: phenomenal. Everyone And they just it. told you to stop don't nice no, and no nicen. longer in our armamentarium. Uh what are the other supplements you had on your list Oh, we're
0: going to do red yeast rice and bergamot.
1: Well, listen, Red Yeast Rice is interesting because it is a in the statin category of drugs, a very weak statin, a very weak cholesterol synthesis inhibitor. And our real problem with it is again, where is the big outcome trial and a test that, yeah, it's as good as the, the, the statin doses and prescriptions we use. But the problem is since it's not a regulated drug, it's supplement company A, supplement company B, and C. You have no clue what's in the capsule or tablet you're swallowing. How much red yeast rice is really in it? Oh, well, the manufacturer told me this much. And you believe them without some regulatory agency assaying that tablet and proving it. So please spare me that stuff. So you. Even if you got a batch that maybe is good, the next batch you get might be a placebo. Absolutely. Why do some
0: batches, I see patients with L, who, who come in taking red yeast rice, their LFTs are, are sky high. I don't know why because you know they're on red yeast rice. What kind is it? You can't figure it out. Then someone else is on it. It's not lowering their LDL appropriately. And I always say to my patients... Registrice is a statin. It's just not a statin that's studied in randomized double blind controlled trials with with powered powered for incredibly important outcome data and regulated for safety and efficacy the way our generic statins are. Which, by the way, when I switch my patients off of all these supplements to a guideline-indicated medication like a statin, you end up saving them hundreds of dollars as well. (laughs)
1: Well, That's another way to look at it. These supplements are not free. And they they really uh, steal your money with those things. One last little part of that story. And you introduced the topic earlier by, oh, people want to use natural things like Mm -hmm. red yeast rice. What could be more natural? It comes out of a yeast. The first three statins on the market, you can group statins into what we call natural statins or Uh Oh, synthesized statins and chemists (laughs) made them up in the laboratory. The three naturalized statins, which are uh, lovastatin, simbastatin, and pravastatin, are yeast derivatives. They're as natural as red yeast rice. Uh And they all work. They all have better efficacy, but proven safety. They all have outcome data. The more synthetic statins that were later developed turned out to be a bit more potent because they could engineer the statin molecule to better inhibit the synthesis enzyme, but they've proven to be just as safe in the long run. And you know what? I was probably the number one prescriber of statins when they hit the market in New Jersey in Now
0: it's me. Well,
1: yeah, <laughs> but I was there when, <laughs> long before you showed up. <laughs> okay. Uh, and I always joked when I finally got on the lecture circuit, you know, doctors are warning me, Tom, don't be using this stuff because you don't know whether it works or not, which was basically true. The first outcome data came in 1994, seven years mm-hmm. after they came on the market. And the first one, the Simvastatin survival trial, and every subsequent one worked has since. But my joke was, you know what? In those seven years, I buried a lot less people than you did, if some wow. doctor told me that's powerful. I and it's, That's it, powerful. statistics bear me out now. that was Yes, like, absolutely. So anyway, natural synthetic, if a drug has data showing it works and they have safety data, do I care whether they extracted it from some nut someplace, meaning a something growing on a plant or whether they synthesize it? No, I do not. It works and it has proven. And the last thing with those statins, 87 is the first one. So we're going, and remember, they were studied a decade before they ever hit the market. So we're on three to four decades of experience with statin, statin safety. Bazillions of people have taken statins. (laughs) And I got a lot of jokes because I've lectured too many. I said, you know, you're you're not a believer. You think statins are killing people or are dangerous. Let's take a little trip down to the graveyard. Oh my God, look at all those tombstones. I will guarantee you. On line one of every death certificate of every cadaver in the grave, not one says statin killed this Agreed. person. Agreed. <laughs> Absolutely. So But trivial. ASHD is on line one in most
0: Absolutely. of them. Absolutely. So Bergamot's the last one that people ask about.
1: You know, I don't know much. People extol it. I, I believe it also is. They don't really know the mechanism. I think somehow it might be a very weak cholesterol synthesis inhibitor, also affecting the enzyme HMG-CoA reductase. But again, what do I care? Yeah. So I don't care how much it lowers LDL-C. Without the safety data, without the outcome data, uh, you're never going to get it. Nobody's going to. No supplement company is going to invest the billion dollars it takes to do a clinical trial. So why would you bet your life on that when you have all these proven therapies available to you, as Danielle indicated, many of the statin class are all generic, so they're very affordable. Ezetamide is generic now, so you can do a lot of ApoB-sflame very cheaply.
0: Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Thank you. I can't even thank you enough for going through that because that's one of the top questions I get. And I just am so thankful that you're able to give, I think the perspective you're able to give, Tom, being around when these started to be studied and you saw what the world was like, the pre-statins, and you saw the change in cardiovascular outcomes as it evolved. And I think it's just so powerful for you to hear that because it's so funny. You know, every once in a while, you know how Twitter is. And every once in a while, I always laugh when people, you know, will call me a statin chill. And, I, you know, I I joke because I'm like, you know, I literally recommend lifestyle all the time. I couldn't recommend nutrition and lifestyle even more. But I love statins so much. And I personally have taken zero dollars from pharma in my, you know, postgraduate training or anything like that. And I, you know, I truly love statins. I think they are the most underrated drug that's been demonized, so unfortunately. And so I'm just glad to hear you be able to give the history of how they evolved and how powerful and safe and effective they are. Hey everyone, I hope you've enjoyed part one of our masterclass episode on lipid lowering therapy with Dr. Tom Dayspring. Stay tuned for next week when we dive into all of the details about the different FDA-approved cholesterol-lowering medications. We discuss statins, zetamide, PCSK9 inhibitors, and more. And highly requested by you all, we discuss the myths and misconceptions about statins, side effects, LDL cholesterol, and, well, you'll just have to tune in next week to hear so much more. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I would love to keep bringing you all the latest health and wellness information and misinformation to debunk. So please do me a quick favor and leave a five-star rating review and share with a friend. Make sure to leave a comment about which wellness bag you'd like debunked next, and I'll get to the bottom of it. Follow me on Instagram at nealblardomd and our podcast page at Wellness Fact versus Fiction, and be sure to tune in next week.